Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. With the Supreme Court in its summer recess, we are reviving our series of interviews with lawyers who argue regularly before the Supreme Court. And today we're lucky enough to have with us Roman Martinez, a partner at Latham and Watkins, who has argued 11 cases before the Supreme Court and briefed many more. Roman, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Amy, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So you've argued at the Supreme Court 11 times, and then you've argued in multiple courts of appeals, state Supreme Courts. How is your approach at the Supreme Court, or is it different from arguing in the lower courts? Yeah, well, I think I think there are two main differences, uh, Amy. One having to do with the, uh, the number of, of judges or justices, uh, and then second, sort of the way in which the court you're in front of sort of feels constrained by different types of legal authority. With respect to the numbers, I think it's just a huge difference arguing in front of nine uh, judges at once, as opposed to, you know, usually three judges in, in a federal court of appeals. And to me, it it just means you you are going to be sort of under attack more, not necessarily because your argument's any better or worse, but just because there are more people with more questions who are going to want to be getting in uh, and, and be part of the action. Um, and so I think that when you're preparing with that kind of to me, what it requires is you have to sort of just prepare for the fact that you, you're going to be cut off sooner. And so your responses need to be a little bit sharper. And you really need to focus on getting your core point out in the first one, two, three sentences on any particular answer, because you just can't count on the uh, judges giving themselves as much time. Now, some of the pressures alleviated in the Supreme Court with the new format from the last year or so, um, where they are they're allowing sort of seriatim questioning at the end. So people tend to have a little bit more time to answer. But I think that's one main difference. The other one is I just feel like the Supreme Court in general, at least at argument, um, it sees itself, it's less constrained by doctrine, I think. And you sort of find yourself arguing more about sort of first principles type questions. And so often there's more of a focus on on text, but also, um, and maybe counterintuitively, there seems to be a lot of focus on policy concerns and practical concerns. And I think the Supreme Court is, is sort of more, is disproportionately focused on those types of things than in the courts of appeals, where often they're, they're hemmed in by Supreme Court precedent or they have less flexibility uh, doctrinally to do different things. And so they're more focused on the case law than some of these other sort of considerations that, that the, the justices are able to focus on. So you've been arguing in Supreme Court for, for a while. Do you do, first of all, you were in the SG's office. You were an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General. Do you do anything differently now than when you were in the SG's office? You know, I think the main changes to my, my sort of approach have come not so much because I was working for the government and am now in private practice, but rather because I'm just, you know, as I do more arguments, I get a little bit more mature and have a little bit more just confidence in how I'm preparing. I think that sort of plays out in a couple of different ways. You know, when you're doing your first argument or two, I think there's uh, naturally a sense that you you don't want to you don't want to look bad. Uh, you don't want to be uh, embarrassed by not knowing the answer to a particular question um, or being stumped on a particular question. And I think that there's a kind of bias. I see this with some of my younger uh, colleagues 
who are starting to do arguments themselves is there's a tendency to want to try to master every single issue, every single case that's cited in any brief and know every last detail about that. And obviously you need to cover your bases and know everything as much as you can. But I think over time, what I've come to appreciate is that it's, it's more important, comparatively speaking, to really focus on the two, three, four things that are actually going to matter to the actual decision. And so when you're thinking about that marginal hour or two or uh, of prep time, focusing that time on the core thing, as opposed to just trying to be comprehensive in your preparation so that if some random topic comes up, you'll have the perfect answer. I think that's one, one thing that I've, uh, that I've learned. Um, I think the only other thing, the, the other thing, or, or another thing is I, I've learned to trust my moot process of preparation a lot more. Um, I used to try to come into the first moot like with a, a fully baked thing. So I would look great to my mooters and especially in the SG's office, you, you're, you're working with such a great set of a talented set of colleagues. You, you don't wanna, you wanna look like you belong and, and like you want your colleagues to think that you belong there and hiring you wasn't an accident. And, and so now though, I kind of am willing to go into a first moot with less of a refined sense of what I actually wanna do. And partly that's because I wanna be flexible. I wanna learn from the moot. And I want to, I don't want to have, have a too fully baked a sense of, of the strategy. So your first argument was in 2013 and that sort of just in terms of the justices was a very different court. Justice Kagan was the junior justice and justices Scalia, Kennedy and Ginsburg were all still on the court. Has that changed the way you get ready for oral argument at all? I don't think a ton. I do think that there are a couple of justices who have, have played an outsized or a kind of a special uh, role at oral argument. And I think that has shaped my, I just feel it shaping how I write a brief and then also how I prepare for argument. So just a couple of examples. I think Justice Scalia was a kind of um, larger than life figure, uh, yes. both in terms of his writing, but also in terms of his presence at oral argument. And so a lot of the time when I was writing a brief, when Justice Scalia was on the court, I sort of felt like he was there kind of sitting on one of my shoulders. <laughs> over my one of my children looking at what I was typing and I was sort of thinking about okay how is he going to react like what is he going to what is he going to give me a hard time about at oral argument and how do I kind of preempt that or counter that and I think having a kind of you know larger than life presence who you know is going to give you a hard time if you if you say something a certain way I think that's a helpful thing I think justices of Kagan and Alito are very effective as you know with hypothetical questions at oral argument and so they are presences that that are kind of you know I'm always thinking about like how 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 am I gonna how how are one of these justices gonna come at me with a hard hypothetical? The other thing that I think with respect to the changing composition of the court that will affect my argument prep a little bit is uh, Justice Breyer's retirement. Justice Breyer always has asked me a, a kind of version of the same question in in almost all my arguments, um, which is essentially along the lines. This is probably not not uh, generous enough to Justice Breyer, but but I, I will phrase it this way. It's, it's sort of the question comes along the lines of like, well, you know, I know the law seems to be on your side, but like, why should I, why should I vote for you? Um, and to me, like that kind of answers, the question answers itself because I'm sort of more of a formalist and I'm a rules guy. And I think what Justice Breyer was sort of getting at uh, in, in the different versions of that question is he wanted to understand the policy considerations and the equities. And he wanted me to focus on that. And so I think have it, that was something that I would always, prepare for because it it's not the most natural way to think about the law for me personally, but I always had to be ready for the Justice Breyer question. And I, I don't know how Justice Jackson will be, but I, I anticipate that others will fill the void. Uh, but but there's always like a, something specific 
there, there is something specific about certain justices and, and the kind of concerns they bring to the table. So tell us, let's back up for a second. Tell us about your first oral argument at the Supreme Court. So my first oral argument was in a case called Octane Fitness. And it had to do with the uh, very interesting issue for, uh, for IP lawyers and for me, because it was my first argument uh, about when you can get attorney's fees uh, in, uh, in patent infringement cases. And so I remember uh, I, was, I just joined the Solicitor General's office and I got one argument that first term. And uh, I called my parents, I called my mom and said, hey, I'm, I'm arguing this case in the Supreme Court. I'm so excited. You all should come down. And she was very excited. And she said, well, what's the case about? And I said, oh, it's about when you can get attorney's fees in patent litigation. And there was this sort of pause <laughs> on the phone. I said, why does the Supreme Court care about that? Um, and you know, so it wasn't necessarily the kind of front page of the New York Times type case. But it was an interesting case that involved you know, a statute um, and really looking at, at sort of its common law and historical origins and trying to kind of put, put um, flesh out the meaning of a somewhat vague statutory term and sort of make a compelling case along those lines. And so that was my first argument and, and it was a great experience. I was an amicus representing the United States. And um, I think we had a protester come in uh, partway during the argument, not while I was speaking or while anyone was, was speaking. So that sort of added a little bit of excitement to the proceedings, um, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. L let me just say one more thing about that first argument. One of the, the nice things about being, or the, the fun things about being in the Solicitor General's office is you get to dress up for oral argument a little differently than everyone else. And as, uh, as I know most of your listeners would know, if you're arguing on behalf of the government in the court, you, uh, you, you wear a, a morning attire. So you have a sort of morning coat. Uh, and so one of the fun kind of uh, pre-argument things I had to do was uh, my dad and I went down to, I went home to New York, to Manhattan, where I grew up, and we went, we went to sort of the Times Square area, and we found this, uh, this sort of place where you could rent tuxedos, and we per persuaded, uh, persuaded the, the tuxedo shop to, to sell me a kind of lightly, gently used uh, morning coat. Uh, so that was kind of a, a nice bonding experience with my dad, but it was, it was uh, all part of the fun of arguing for the government. Did you tell him why you needed the morning coat that he was going to sell you? I did tell him why I, need, I needed the morning coat. I, he didn't seem as as uh, interested, uh, perhaps, uh, 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 but uh, he didn't fully appreciate the gravity of the situation or, or why <laughs> the particular morning coat had to look just right. Uh, but I was very glad to uh, to be able to to locate one. They're actually kind of hard to find. So you've you've told us a little bit actually about your moot courts and what you do while you're there. Can you tell us anything else about your preparation in the weeks leading up to the oral argument? You know, how, do, how many moot courts do you do? You know, do you then walk around talking to yourself, practicing the answers to questions? What's your preparation look like? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, as you know, like most of the time when you're arguing a case, whether it's in the Supreme Court or elsewhere, most of the time when you're arguing a case in the, in the Supreme Court or in other courts, you are uh, arguing the case months after the briefs have been filed. Sometimes in the Supreme Court, it's a little closer. And so that break in, in time sort of gives you an opportunity to get a little bit of distance from the case after living and breathing it very closely while writing the briefs. And so what I like to do to start my prep is I like to sit down and read the briefs, all the briefs in order, the way the justices might read them in preparing. And as I do that, I write down a list of questions that 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 someone coming at the case fresh might might have. And I also start to distill from the briefs what I think are likely to be the three, four, five, six sort of like major topics of concern, of questions, 
you know, what is the case ultimately going to turn on? And then I use that kind of list to, to then develop a, a kind of an outline. It's not really an outline in the sense of a, a logical plan for the argument, but it's, it's a set of sort of points um, that, are, that are kind of, you can move them and put them in different orders, but points of how I would address each of the four, five, six kind of main topics that I think are likely to, to be what the case turns on. And I figure out for each of those, what is the key thing I want to say on this topic? What's the what's my my best thirty seconds on this particular topic? And then you know what is the question I'm going to get in response to that? What are the kind of defensive responses? And then what are the pivots to to get to other areas? And so I, I sort of put together an outline that is less logically um, coherent as a whole than the brief would be, um, and it's more sort of mo module oriented, um, and it really is geared towards um, towards sort of like what is the most important thing I have to say on this topic if it comes up? Um, after I do that, I then like to uh, uh, really refine those thoughts and answers in the moot court setting. Um, it used to be, uh, and, and still from time to time, I, I, I have the advantage of having a, um, a wife who is a, a former uh, Supreme Court and appellate litigator uh, and, and general litigator as well, um, who's, who's a wonderful sounding board. And so I would always have force her to read all my briefs and then we would do an argument at home like a moot court argument at home um and this would be kind of like the office moot courts except the chief justice would usually have a glass of wine and uh the advocate would sometimes be in, in his pjs um but we would kind of i would i would get her take on the case um and get sort of a very good high level like reaction to the briefs from someone who really was was uh not involved obviously in the drafting um, and it would just be a very good way to sort of orient myself to set how someone totally new would look at the case. I could also try things out and be much more relaxed than even in my first move in the office. Um, in addition to that, I would do sort of more normal moot courts in the office with, with colleagues. I like to do at least two of them, but I love moot courts. I think they're enormously helpful. And so if I can, if I can persuade people to hear me talk and ask me questions, um, you know, I'll do more than two moot courts from time to time as well. I'm going to talk specifically about opening statements, which have changed generally since you started doing this in 2013. So first, I'm going to play a snippet from your argument in U.S. versus Wong in 2014. Mr. Martinez. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Three features of the FTCA's text and history make clear that Congress did not want to allow equitable tolling of its time bar. First, Congress drafted that bar in 1946 using jurisdictional language transplanted from the Parallel Tucker Act context. Is, Second, the, is the word jurisdiction used? Next, I'm going to play your opening statement from this spring in Vega versus Teco. Mr. Martinez? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Ninth Circuit's extension of Miranda into 1983 litigation is inconsistent with settled precedent and sound policy. For two reasons, you should reverse. First, Miranda is a judicially crafted prophylactic rule, and the violation of such a rule doesn't violate the constitutional rights of any person. Second, as Tico now concedes, the Ninth Circuit's proximate causation holding is wrong. That concession provides a complete basis for reversal here. Officers can't be held liable when the mistakes are made by prosecutors and judges. There was no coercion. This case should end. Unless the Court has questions, I'll start with our view of what... Uh, Mr. Martinez, the, um, 
And so these days the court has a practice of generally allowing lawyers two minutes of uninterrupted time at the beginning of each argument. So I guess, how do you structure your opening statement now? And then does it change the dynamics at all in the rest of the argument, knowing that you've got, you've already had two minutes to make some of your points? Yeah, so so it's interesting. I will tell you that, um, you know, as someone who is uh, who is nervous and wanted to do a good job in their first argument, I'll tell you one of the things that I did, maybe not the best use of argument prep time, but uh, I was not billing for the by the hour when I was uh, when I was in government <laughs> service. I did a little uh, little study of all the arguments from that term, and I, I was trying to figure out how many sentences will they let me get out before they start interrupting me. And under the old system where you didn't have this two minute window, it turned out that that term, the answer was about 3.1 sentences. So um, for that first argument, and also for a lot of my arguments in the SG's office before they, the format shifted, um, I would basically try to figure out, like focus a lot of time on how do I get my core points out in basically two, maybe three sentences with the understanding that I was likely to get interrupted at that point. Um, in the Wong case, I think I I got interrupted, uh, you know, about 1.1 sentence into my uh, into my remarks, and so usually what I would try to do is um, is get like the core idea out in the first sentence, but also try to signpost that I was going to give three reasons or two reasons or something. Uh, my hope was that if you say you're going to have say two things, and then it looks like you're going to get to them efficiently, maybe the court would the justices would give me a chance to at least put those ideas on the table. That didn't always work. Uh, you know, Wong's an example of that. But I think saying, you know, we got three reasons: first, second, third. And if they know you're going to get that out, maybe they'll they'll cut you a break and, and, and let you get get that out. That's sort of, sort of under the old system where you know you you were just at their mercy when they wanted to interrupt. Under the new system, with the two minute um, the two minute sort of uninterrupted opening, you really do have time to to kind of lay out your main themes. And so what I like to do is one be thematic. And try to really introduce kind of like your general your general point. Um, two, I do want to make I, I do want to give a little bit of structure. And so, if I have two reasons or three reasons that are the things that I think are most likely to move the needle, I want to get those out in a very clear way in my own words in that introduction, so that I can kind of refer back to those points once the questioning uh, once the questioning starts. And so, to me, those are kind of the two. The two key objectives, and then obviously in making the legal points, you also want to inject a flavor of the equities, in a sense, to kind of make them wanting to rule for you uh, as well. Do you have any morning of argument traditions? So one thing that I've learned over the years has been, and this isn't really a morning of argument, but it's like the pre, that's the evening before argument. I've sort of grown to appreciate the, the value of a good night's sleep. I tend to work, some people are morning people and work well in the morning. I tend to, I tend to be the opposite. I tend to value quiet time at night and I can usually work relatively late into the night, you know, doing legal briefs or reading material. I think that, that because of that, I'm sort of biased towards just like kind of, I could continue working till very late and preparing if I had to. But if you do that and you have to get up for a nine, you know, to get to the court by nine o'clock, you lose sleep. And I, I just think I'm, I'm sharper with, with a really good night's sleep. So I just sort of forced myself to go to bed earlier. That's maybe the most important thing. That morning I get up, I, I like, you know, seeing the kids in the morning and, and then getting to the, usually getting to the office in time to print out my materials one last time, go through my outline one last time. I sort of have a system of underlining key phrases in my outline, 
and and that's a way that I kind of internalize it, sort of say it to myself, um, and then and then just make sure to get to the court with plenty of time. So you mentioned printing out your outline. What is that? What you take up to the lectern is the outline. Yeah. So so what I usually do, and this is really um, based on the advice of a colleague in the SG's office when I first got there, was preparing for my first argument. The lectern uh, is just about the right uh, width and size to bring like a, a, a three ring binder um, up there and sort of open it up. And so what I tend to do is I have a, a slim three ring binder where I, I will have, um, you know, if I have a prepared opening, I'll sort of bring that in, that'll be there. And then I'll have my two, three, four page of like sort of module outline notes. I'll have that there. I like to have it there. It's really, it's really kind of a security blanket. I almost never look at it during the argument. Sure. Except, and this is where I think this is this is where I think it can be valuable. I like to sort of work in key phrases from statutory language or key key language from decisions into my answers. And so I like to have that stuff in front of me so that I can look down and see sort of underlined in red. This is the quote. This is the kind of money excerpt you know, the four or five word phrase from the case that I'm going to use. And so I just like having that there. And then I have next to me uh, at the lectern, um, I like to have the briefs. And then sometimes I'll have, uh, you know, a, a printout of, of the key statutory language, which is often important to have if you're going to, if you're in a statutory case where the court wants to kind of really work through it with you. I, so it sounds like a lot of stuff. In reality, you get up there. And then once the questions start coming, you're really in a back and forth and you know the case so well that that you don't really have to rely on that material, but I, I find it useful to have it there just in case. Um, and certainly if, if there's something that comes up that involves parsing the language of a statute or, or even a, a precedent, it's good to have the, that with you. When you have, so the argument is, is in play, what do you do if you have somebody whose vote you probably think isn't in play or definitely isn't in play, and that person is still peppering you with questions? You, you mentioned, you work on trying to figure out how to pivot out of out of things. Yeah, so I think a couple of things. Like, first of all, if you've got a tough uh, justice who's who's coming at you in a tough way, if you think they might not be in play, it kind of depends whether you think they're whether you think you need their vote. You know, are they the fifth vote in the case? And hopefully for you, they're not. And so, in circumstances where you think they're probably against you, but you think you can get uh, a majority of 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 the court as a whole without them, then I think the first thing you have to do, of course, always is answer their questions because you don't want their questions to score points off of you in a way that's going to influence other people who might be, you know, 50-50 or sitting on the fence. So you need to be respectful always and you need to answer the questions always. But I also think that you need to try to pivot as best you can to the points that are going to be strong for you and that are going to maybe go back to points that are that are going to resonate more with justices who who are potentially votes in your favor. And there's no one size fits all, I think, answer to how to do this. Sometimes I think it can be powerful to acknowledge the force of a justice's critique of your position. And that sometimes will help that justice sort of at least get comfort that you're not ignoring their concern, even if you're not necessarily agreeing with them. And maybe that that can lead to them to, you know, to, to be less aggressive or to back off with follow-up questions so you can get to other points. I think other times in the course of the answer, you can um, you can just sort of try to seamlessly pivot to what you want to say that's going to be directed to other justices. And then sometimes it's nice to actually invoke other justices and kind of say, you know, link a question or your answer to a question to a question that had come from another justice 
and then start to answer the, the point as though you're responding to the other justice as well. And that can sometimes help deflect additional follow-up questions uh, from the justice you're trying to pivot away from because they want to be respectful of their colleague. I'm going to play a snippet from Yates versus United States, a really interesting case. You were getting a lot of questions from lots of different justices. Then Justice Scalia makes a joke. But what if you stopped them on the street and said it's a fish, a record, document, or tangible object? I, I think if, if you if you asked them that question and you, and you pointed them to the fact that... I don't think you would get a polite answer to either of those questions. <laughs> Your, Your Honor, maybe I could say a word. In, in, having talked about the nouns, maybe I could say a word about the verbs uh, in this statute because they make a. Yeah. So, so, right. So, so I was under fire in that argument from a lot of different uh, places, including uh, Justice Scalia throughout the argument. I will note we we did not uh, prevail in that case. We lost five four, but Justice Scalia was ultimately on our side um, because I think the text of the statute uh, sort of compelled our position, at least in his view and in my view. Um, but he had concerns, sort of policy concerns about the particular uh, stance of the U.S. government, the decision to prosecute the, 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 the defendant at issue. I think what, what happened there was that sometimes you get a, a joke or um, you get laughter from the court or, uh, or from, the from, the, uh, from the spectators. It kind of provides a nice break point <laughs> and it, 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 it provides an excuse where you don't actually need a super smooth transition to start talking about something else. I think that's an example where, uh, you know, everyone everyone had a good time with with uh, with laughing at, at at Justice Scalia's comment, but then it it was sort of a little bit more natural just to start talking about a different point that was one that I had wanted affirmatively to make, but had not yet had the opportunity to 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 get in. And I'll just say one one more thing about the Yates argument. There were a couple of different points in the argument where there was uh, there were sort of some jokes or there was a reaction from the spectators. I'm I'm told that I was told after the fact that uh, my father-in-law, who was in town for the argument, um, was was uh, laughing uh, with great, great exuberance and delight at some of the jokes, uh, even or perhaps especially when they were at my expense. Um, and so, you know, he hasn't been invited back, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad uh, I'm glad the argument provided uh, entertainment uh, for, for, for some at least. Move on to rebuttal. I'm going to play your rebuttal from this spring in Vega versus Teco. Uh, rebuttal, Mr. Martinez. My friend on the other side is trying to preserve Dickerson by interpreting it in a way that was rejected by Dickerson's own author and is inconsistent with decisions of this court, both predating Dickerson and postdating Dickerson. Dickerson gives Miranda constitutional status, but it doesn't say that Miranda creates a Fifth Amendment right. Our reading of Dickerson and the case law as a whole harmonizes the doctrine, and it's consistent with the language of Dickerson itself, the prior cases, Harris, Quarles, Tucker, Elstad, Payne, the Chavez plurality, and five justices in their votes in the Patain case, um, where five justices agreed that Dickerson did not undermine the pre-Dickerson post-Miranda cases. We think you should adopt Chief Justice Rehnquist's consistent, common-sense, middle-ground approach to Miranda, you should preserve Dickerson, but you should hold there's no Fifth Amendment right here giving rise to 1983. As to causation, they've raised a totally new theory here. It wasn't raised below. They described their own jury. So generally, what are you trying to accomplish with your rebuttal? So, and this is consistent with, with my sort of, um, my prep process up front. You know, ultimately, there are going to be a couple things that are going to be important in the case and that are going to potentially move votes. 
And one approach to a rebuttal could be find the thing that is most wrong that your opponent said and and attack that. I tend to think that that you know you need to re really be listening to the justices' questions throughout the argument and trying to think big picture. What are the two or three things that are potentially going to decide this case? And they might not be the things that that your opponent said that are most objectionable, but but it's the stuff that's most important. And so I generally try to figure out what are the one or two, three topics or things that are going to be most important, and then what are the what are the one or two responses that I have on those key points that I can try to get across. Um, in addition to that, I think it's it's useful to try to end strong. And so if you can sort of close off the rebuttal with a point, maybe it's a factual point, um, as, as was the case a little bit in the Vega argument, maybe it's a legal point, you know, coming back to the text of the statute, something that reinforces and feels strong, I think that can, that can be a sort of powerful way to end the rebuttal and, and at least leave the justices with the impression that, that um, you know, the petitioner had something really strong to say and came back strong on rebuttal. And I think that kind of can give you some momentum. Before we let you go, I have to ask you about your oral argument in 2020 in Barr versus American Association of Political Consultants. And this was the May 2020 sitting when the court was operating fully remotely. And while you were arguing, we heard what sounded an awful lot like a toilet flush. And we'll, we'll play a snippet so that our listeners can hear it as well. And what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic, then the call is transformed and it's, it's yeah. a call that would have been allowed and it's no longer allowed. And so I think- All right, so first, did you hear it in real time as you were arguing? So I will tell you in, in my preparation for that case, you know, we, the, the court was doing the seriatim questioning. So each justice was gonna have a turn to answer their questions. And I had a feeling that Justice Kagan's um, turn was gonna be one of the hardest sort of segments for me. <laughs> and so I was really geared up for, for the Justice Kagan portion of the q a it was gonna be you know her three minute window or whatever it was and so i was kind of like totally locked in on the questions and trying to be responsive and trying to get my main points out and so when we were going back and forth in the questioning i definitely heard something in the background um i think probably uh i was probably lucky in not uh identifying it uh as a toilet flush at the at the moment when it happened I, it was sort of like a a noise that was loud, but I was so trying to be locked into Justice Kagan's questions and my answers that uh, that I didn't I didn't sort of discern what it was. It was only uh, minutes or seconds after the argument ended when I, I logged off or turned off my phone, uh, my speakerphone, and turned on my cell phone when suddenly text messages were exploding uh, <laughs> into my uh, into my into my uh, feed or whatever with people commenting on what had just happened. And at first, I wasn't totally sure exactly what they were talking about. Uh, but I quickly figured it out. So it was definitely a, an unusual, an unusual or day at oral argument uh, that morning. Well, you did a great job of of just sort of you did just kept talking, you know, after hearing something and listening to the the audio. It really doesn't seem like you missed a beat. Well, well, thank you. I mean, it was a, it was a challenging, a very interesting and, and challenging case, um, and uh, you know, it gave me the opportunity. Sometimes I'm invited to talk about the Supreme Court, and especially uh, during the pandemic over Zoom, it gave me the opportunity. I had a good, um, I had a good sort of message at the beginning of a remark. My remarks, I would, I would remind the audience to put themselves on mute, and I'd say, "Here's why this is important," and then I'd play the, <laughs> play the clip or, or play the, uh, play the clip of you know Stephen Colbert sort of, you know, making fun of the whole episode uh, that night on on TV. But uh, 
but anyway, it was, uh, you know, it was a one of a kind COVID experience and we've all, we've all experienced, uh, you know, different things out of COVID, but that was, uh, that's my, my COVID story. I went back and listened to it to get ready for this recording. And you notice at the beginning that the chief justice does say to the just the other justices and, and presumably the lawyers who are arguing, be sure to turn off your cell phones. He doesn't say anything about muting yourselves. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it really was, it was, it was interesting because I think that argument was either the second or third argument uh, at the very beginning of the COVID era of oral argument. It was, it was like, I think the second day and it was all about, um, you know, this was a new format and we were just going to be on phones. No one, it was, it was really very early. So I think folks were just, you know, on all sides uh, of, of the lectern, we're, we're just not totally sure how this was going to operate, but uh, we all sort of felt our way through it. So what advice before we let you go for good, what advice would you give to somebody arguing at the court for the first time? So I, I think, you know, we've talked about a lot of, a lot of stuff about how I prepare. And so I think, I think really, you know, in terms of preparation, it's focusing on the really key, very small number of issues that might actually make a difference, a meaningful difference in your case, focusing your preparation mostly on that, trusting your, your, your setting up good quality moot courts with people that you really respect and who are going to give you, going to sort of join you on your side of the table and helping you think through strategy for the case. We've talked about all that stuff. I actually think, you know, the opportunity to argue in front of the Supreme Court is such an honor. You should just go up there, really appreciate the privilege and the honor of doing it and just have fun because it's the preparation is, is super challenging. But once you're doing it, it's it's really a great, uh, a, a great sort of experience to have and uh, and make sure you take the time to relish it. Bring your friends and family, um, share the experience with them and, and enjoy the experience. All right. Well, we've certainly enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much, Ramon. Thanks, Amy. Really appreciate you having me on. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.